chlorophyll, convergence, and a crisis with debt. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And man, there are some doozies this week. Uh, so hopefully I do a decent job answering these. We get to biochemistry. I'm not great at biochemistry, but man, so much fun recently. I saw a lot of you at the Liturgist Gathering in LA. I hope to see more of you as I hit the road again. So uh, let's get it started. So like a year and a week ago, maybe a year, week and a half ago, my book Finding God in the Waves came out. Major, major uh, thing in my life, as you know if you follow the show or listen to the one-year anniversary special. But uh, I do want to let you know that the paperback version of Finding God in the Waves comes out October the 3rd, and it's got a couple of neat features that the hardback book doesn't have. One is a group discussion guide. Right in the book, uh, my publisher hired some genius to uh, read my book and write an incredibly thoughtful discussion guide with great questions. So if you want to go through the book with others, uh, this would be a great format to do that in, especially when it's coupled with the second feature, an incredibly low price. The retail price of the paperback is $14, and I've seen it online for as low as 10 bucks. So this is definitely the cheapest way to get your hands on the book. And knowing a lot of you in this audience, cash is short. So this might actually be your first opportunity to have a copy of my book, Finding God in the Waves. Now, if you haven't bought the book yet because you've heard that my story's in it and you feel like you already know my story through, you know, You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes or the Liturgist podcast or one of the seven million interviews I've given online wherein I go into my story, I don't want that to hold you back from getting a copy of the book. Uh, The first half of the book is, in fact, my story, but told at a level of detail that's never been done in an interview or on stage. I'm really able to go in depth into what my problems with Scripture were, why I had philosophical, logical objections to the idea of God in general, and and in specific detail. So uh, if you're a skeptical person, you might find a degree of solidarity in my book that you've never seen before. Uh, but the other thing that makes the book different from any other telling of my story is the second half, which is where I go through and describe how I see God in science and how I approach God through mysticism to help people build a new framework to relate to God of their own. My book is not about convincing you to think like I do or believe like I do, but instead to help you examine what you believe. And if you're in some state of you know, angst about what you feel about God or what you think about God, uh, show you ways that you can begin to explore spiritual ideas, spiritual practice, and the idea of God again. So that's what Finding God in the Waves, How I Lost My Faith 
and Founded Again Through Science is all about. Available in paperback October 3rd for as little as $10. You can learn more by going to findinggodinthewaves.com. I've been fascinated already to watch uh, hardback sales drop off a cliff the last couple of weeks and paperback pre-orders more than pick up the slack. So for those of you who've been getting a copy of the book without even knowing uh, or hearing about it on the podcast, it's really cool you're paying that much attention. And now the rest of you uh, listening in podcast land, I hope you'll consider getting a copy of the book. Uh, Before we get into the show, I do want to tell you I have like a zillion events coming up, like a zillion, uh, which is not a real number, which is why I can use it. Um, October the 6th, I'll be at the Liturgist Gathering in Boston. Uh, That is nearing sellout. So if you're anywhere near Boston and thinking about going, get your ticket right now. Don't wait. TheLiturgistGathering.com and you can get a ticket or just Google The Liturgist Gathering. Our our SEO is pretty good, so you should be able to find us. The Liturgist Gathering in Los Angeles was amazing. We had a packed house. Uh, We did a live podcast that you'll be able to hear on the Liturgist podcast feed really soon. And uh, we're going to have Christina Cleveland with us in Boston. I could not be more excited about that. And then, of course, October 27th, I'll be in Seattle for the Liturgist Gathering where Hillary McBride will join us. Uh, So we'll have a live podcast. We'll do a table liturgy we've designed together. And we'll talk about crazy stuff. We'll do breakout sessions. And you'll get to know people like you who, um, you know, aren't really into pretending anymore. (laughs) So we'd love to see you at the Liturgist Gathering, October 6th in Boston, October 27th in Seattle. And of course, in the middle of that, I'll be doing a UK tour. October 11th, I'll be in London. And October 13th, I'll be in Birmingham. And October 17th, I'll be in Edinburgh, for an Ask Science Mike live recording. Tickets are on sale right now. You can go to AskScienceMike.com and click on events to get tickets there. October 21st, I'll be doing the Rubicon Conference in Dublin, Ireland. Tickets for some of those sessions are sold out, but the overall conference tickets are still available. Uh, You can find out more at WeAreRubicon.com. And then I've got a lot more events coming up uh, for the rest of the year. And into next year, which you can see on the events page on AskScienceMike.com. Please come see me. Uh, I love seeing you all and spending time with you and getting to know you and hearing your stories. You know, people come up to me in line and they say, I hear your voice all the time. And it's so weird to hear your voice now. But it's not weird for me to hear your voice. It's wonderful. So let's turn our parasocial relationship into an actual social relationship And I'll see you, hopefully, while I'm on the road. Hi, Mike. This is Deacon Godsey from Lawrence, Kansas. I was listening to an NPR interview this evening with author Jonathan Lazos about his new book, Improbable Destinies, Fate, Chance, and the Future of Evolution. And he spoke about convergent evolution and how some of the recent findings in engineered evolution are blowing some of Darwin's theories out of the water in terms of the length of time that's required for evolutionary change to take place. And I was just wondering if you'd read the book, if you have any thoughts on convergent evolution that you could share with us and any other resources you could point us towards. Thanks so much. Well, 
Just to be completely honest right up front, I have not read Improbable Destinies yet. Um, I have a copy. It's on my bookshelf of the books I haven't read yet. So I'll probably get there in the next, uh, I don't know, maybe next year. I'm reading a lot as I research my next book, uh, and that's consuming most of my reading time. Uh, but I will get there eventually. The good news is I'm familiar with some of the concepts from Improbable Destiny, especially Convergent Evolution. So let's kind of dig into that. To compare Convergent Evolution to Darwinian Evolution, I, well, I was going to say it was like comparing apples to oranges, but it's not. It's more like comparing an apple peel to an apple. <laughs> it, so Convergent Evolution isn't like a comprehensive theory of evolution. Instead, it's just an observed phenomenon that informs the theory of evolution. Okay, so it's something we see happening that leads us to evaluate how we view evolution because it's a, it's a particular facet of evolution via natural selection. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Most of the time, when you see similar traits in two different species of animal or animals, it's because they share a common ancestor. So think about the similarities in the bones of like a human's arms and a dog's legs. If you look at a skeletal diagram, you'll see we have very similar numbers of bones and very similar relationship to each other, just in different proportions at different angles. And depending on you know what species you're looking at, the similarity can be uncanny. For example, uh, a skeletal diagram of a whale's fin looks remarkably like a human hand. A whale's forearm is just very, very, very short, and its fingers are very long and webbed together. But <laughs> the, the bone structure underneath certainly speaks to our common ancestry. And uh, when you think about humans' arms and dogs' legs, well, of course... They're similar. We're both mammal tetrapods, meaning mammals with four limbs. And our ancestor, our common ancestor with dogs, was also a mammal tetrapod. So in this case, evolution was divergent. It produced different traits from the same ancestor. Uh, convergent evolution is the opposite, where a similar trait or traits have developed without common ancestry. So think about dolphins and sharks. Uh, dolphins are mammals that are aquatic. Sharks are predatory fish. They're in completely different wings of the animal kingdom, and yet their form is remarkably similar. Uh, their common ancestor didn't look like a dolphin or a shark. And, and dolphins went through this weird period of evolution where they were land animals before they went back into the water, and yet they have a very similar form. Uh, let's see other examples of convergent evolution. Think about bats and birds. The common ancestor of bats and birds didn't have wings, and yet both bats and birds have wings and fly through the air in a similar way. So evolution has converged on a common solution without a common ancestor holding the trait in question. That's convergent evolution. 
Uh, eyes are another example of convergent evolution. There's there's several different eye lineages and eye strategies in the animal kingdom. And um, that's quite remarkable. And in fact, some people use that as evidence of you know, intelligent design or God's involvement in evolution, that God uh, uses these dissimilar evolutionary paths to reach a similar solution. You know, most scientists wouldn't buy that, but I, I just wanted to mention some, <laughs> some theologians find that very encouraging. But what convergent evolution does tell us, and as we study it more deeply, is that when selection pressures are intense— when environmental factors are, are tough, evolution can actually happen at a speed Darwin never imagined. You know, Darwin imagined these random mutations over time being selected for or against by the environment that slowly and subtly created new species, created new traits in animals. And what we're seeing in engineered evolution and engineered convergent evolution is... Um, Evolution can happen incredibly fast. You know, we've been uh, working with some bacterial strains for like 30 years in laboratory conditions where permanent radical alterations have happened in these bacteria in a human lifetime. Another example uh, I read from Improbable Destinies uh, is the changes that can happen in plants when you prevent rabbits from feeding on them. Like you can see in a very, very short amount of time, radical alterations, not only in the appearance of the plants, but in their genome and their genetic structure. So it turns out that uh, evolution via uh, natural selection can impart rapid changes in organisms, which may be responsible for how life recovers from extinction events. Uh, asteroid collisions, ice ages, these events we've had in Earth history where most species have been wiped out. It creates a period of intense selection pressure and rapid changes in the genome and rapid introduction of new species, sometimes along uh, previous solutions to ecological problems like wings. So the ideas and improbable destinies like convergent evolution aren't about refuting the theory of evolution or even refuting Darwin himself. Instead, they're about updating our understanding of how evolution works, and that's science. Darwin's texts aren't meant to be infallible revelations to humanity, but instead a series of hypotheses supported by a body of observed evidence that is subject to revision as we learn more about the world over time. The fact that scientists today still accept the basic framework of Darwinian evolution speaks to the brilliance of the model, but it would be unrealistic to think that evolution and our understanding of it wouldn't grow and change as we learn more about it. It is in the very character of the theory of evolution for the theory itself to evolve over time. 
Our next question came in via email, and it sounds simple, but it's incredibly hard. It might be one of the hardest questions ever submitted to the program that is pure science. The question is this. How does chlorophyll convert photons into stable energy that can support life for the whole planet? It seems chlorophyll is best at transforming and storing energy. Could some form of nanotechnology be able to capture those in the same way? This is an absolutely perfect question. It's phenomenal and it's difficult for several reasons. The first one is of all the sciences, chemistry challenges me the most. It's not even close. I barely passed chemistry in high school uh, by the skin of my teeth, and uh, it was not from a lack of effort. (laughs) For some reason, chemistry uh, does not work with my learning style, and that comes to both understanding it as well as explaining it to others. And photosynthesis is a largely chemical process. There's some, certainly some physics there in the beginning as uh, photons excite electrons. But beyond that, you're squarely in the realm of chemistry. And uh, chemistry is freaking complicated. I understand physics is also complicated. Physics is complicated in a way that I can understand. The math of physics, if I work hard enough, uh, comes to me. Um, chemistry, nope, just doesn't work. And then, and then you layer biochemistry on top of that. It's even harder because it's so many interdependent chemical reactions. So it's not just add this, this, do a little math, make a prediction. It's these cascading chains of chemical reactions. And oh man, those are smart people, biochemists. Um, So that's the first problem answering the question. The second problem is we've been studying photosynthesis for over 100 years in great detail as a species. And there are parts of the process that are utter mysteries to us today. So if you go like on YouTube and watch videos about photosynthesis and chlorophyll, not the ones for kids, but like the ones for, you know, undergrads and postgrad students, You'll see like really remarkable uh, explanations that are thorough. Uh, Crash Course Biology Number Eight on photosynthesis is one that's fantastic. Also, uh, there's got a TED Ed video, Nature's Smallest Factory, the Calvin Cycle, uh, that was a little more accessible but still quite detailed. And they break out, you know, photosynthesis and. That's stage two process, the stage one process, how that works into the Calvin cycle, you know, where chlorophyll sits in the structure of plant cells, where these different processes happen in relation to each other biologically. And it it is very deep. Uh, But if you take any one step they give you in a text or a video and you try to dig deeper into it, you'll find that especially in the early parts of photosynthesis, You begin to brush up against our best understandings of physics in general, like wave-particle duality. Um, So we don't know exactly how photosynthesis works. We've got a a, a great understanding biochemically, um, but the underlying physics are fuzzy. Uh, So I tried to write, um, sometimes I'm very proud of myself, Uh, I did a relativity explanation earlier in the program 
that I thought was among the clearest I've ever heard. And I pat myself on the back and I said, good job. So I thought, you know what? If I can make relativity easy to understand with a baseball, then surely I can make photosynthesis accessible. And I wrote uh, a script and I recorded it. And it was 25 minutes and confusing as hell. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to recommend instead that if you're that interested, check out one of the two videos I linked in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. Because when it comes to photosynthesis, a visual aid is incredibly helpful. So I'll skip to just like a high-level overview here and say that photosynthesis uses light in the form of photons, primarily at red and blue wavelengths, carbon dioxide, and water to make oxygen and hydrocarbons like glucose or starches. Technically, it can also make uh, the structures inside of plants as well, which is neither glucose nor starch, but is a hydrocarbon. And that little process, complicated and mysterious as it is, is responsible for the vast bulk of biological energy on this planet. Almost every food chain on Earth is completely reliant on photosynthesis. The only exceptions are some uh, closed-loop food chains that rely on volcanic vents in the deep ocean. Other than that, all life on this planet is completely dependent on photosynthesis. Uh, Now, oddly enough, for something so important in our food chains, photosynthesis just isn't very energy efficient. Excuse me, just isn't very efficient at all, I suppose. No, I guess, no, that's right. I'm going to backtrack on my backtracking. It is not energy efficient. (laughs) Because only about 3% of the sunlight absorbed in photosynthesis is converted into organic compounds. Can you believe that? 3%. If we compare that to artificial photosynthesis, which is where a photovoltaic cell, like a solar panel, uh, drives electrodes and creates uh, hydrogen from water using electrolysis, um, that can create 10% of absorbed light into hydrogen in a year's time compared to 3% for photosynthesis. So it's maddlingly inefficient, especially in the Calvin cycle, the the nitty gritty of how um, the first byproducts in uh, PS2 and PS1 uh, produce uh, basic chemicals from excited photons or excited electrons from photon absorption Um, very, very little of that process comes out of the cycle. Most of it gets looped back, looped back into the cycle. Uh, And that's why so little is left to allow the plant to do plant things that aren't photosynthesis, like grow (laughs) or get eaten by us. (laughs) Um, Now, that's, that's not to say we may not eventually be able to replicate the molecular action of photosynthesis and nanotechnology. We certainly can't yet. It is far, far, far too complicated for what our capabilities are today in nanotechnology. Um, but I wonder if we would like, if we would want to, if it would be more efficient to emulate photosynthesis than to just have natural photosynthesis do what it does. Uh, Photosynthesis does some things that none of our artificial systems do, like take carbon dioxide from the air or create really easy to store and transport energy. 
hydrocarbons like sugar are incredibly energy dense and stable for transport. Hydrogen is less energy dense than a hydrocarbon and really a pain in the ass to transport. Hydrogen loves to explode, <laughs> which is a, is a negative feature in, uh, in, in fuel stability. Um, so even if we could get all the benefits of photosynthesis via nanotechnology, could we ever do it as economically as using an existing technology called agriculture to cultivate and grow plants? The problem is not that we know, don't know how to scale up photosynthesis. The problem is we just decide as a, it's a lower economic priority. Um, but I think if we care about our earth and its long-term sustainability, if we want to clean our air, if we want to cool our cities, uh, we should have a societal scale investment in photosynthesis in the form of planting trees and leafy plants, as many as we can, everywhere that we can, and our civil engineering should be done in a way that is plant-friendly. Here's what I mean. I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. This is an incredibly treed city. It has very clean air and water as a result of all those trees, but anytime there's a storm that knocks some tree branches down, the grid fails, right? Because they've done a good job preserving, protecting, and planting trees. They haven't done a great job at investing in utilities, especially electrical and communication utilities, that uh, aren't affected by tree falling, trees falling. So that means investing, and it's expensive, I get it, but making a good decision as societies to invest in below-ground utilities and lots of above-ground trees. It makes for healthy cities. It combats the effects of climate change, not only by directly absorbing carbon from the air, but also by shading all of these surfaces in urban environments that absorb light during the day and release it at night, raising the temperatures in cities. My new city of Los Angeles, for example, would be well served by planting and cultivating lots of shade trees in urban areas. It would clean the air and cool down the urban corridor, and we don't need nanotechnology to do that. Hey, Science Mike. I have a political science question for you. I follow a Twitter account that on occasion tweets out the current national debt. Uh, and it's been a while since I've uh, paid attention to this account. It was before the election of Donald Trump. And I just remember it was kind of staying consistent around the $17 trillion mark that, that we were in debt. And then just recently, as in yesterday, I happened to glance back at the, the Twitter account, and it says that we are now at $20 trillion in debt. And this is just a really confusing concept for me because I look around at America, and while, yes, we do have um, poor and homeless, and that is a real issue, I would just think that a country 
being that far in debt, you would see so much more poverty. You would see so many more issues. Um, And so I'm wondering why, first off, we aren't being taxed out of our rear ends. I'm not saying that that's what I want. I'm just curious why we're not in order to fix this problem with the debt. And why also, because of that, aren't we facing more issues on an economic level as far as the average life of an American? What is it that's causing us to be so sustained despite being so far in debt? And if you wouldn't mind elaborating even why are we this far in debt? How have we dug this hole so deeply and why does it continue to grow? I realize that's the, uh, well, I guess, trillion-dollar question right now. But if you could shed some light on that, uh, I would be very grateful. Thanks. It is impossible to answer this question in a way everyone will be happy with. There is tremendous disagreement among economists on why the debt is so bad, the best way to address the debt, how we got to where we are. I'm going to do my my best to give a centrist consensus on the debt story for a guy who loves physics and is a college dropout. <laughs> oh, man. Biochemistry and economic slash political science. In the same week, I can just hear people riveted by this week's program all over the world. <laughs> Uh, but it's super relevant, so let's do this. Let's talk about the debt. Uh, America's debt is over $20 trillion now, um, so that's true. Uh, so why don't we feel the effects of such a massive, massive debt? Well, here's the short answer. Because most American debt is owed to the United States federal government or its citizens or state and local governments. So we owe the debt to ourselves, and we have enough tax revenue to cover payments to the debt. So $20 trillion is a lot, but the United States has a lot of money. It has a big, vibrant economy. So uh, if you would imagine a very rich person. Now, I typically don't like to use an individual as an analog for a national economy because that gives you some very terrible assumptions about economies. A person participates in an economy. Uh, A a nation has an economy. So um, (laughs) the analog, I guess, would only work if the person was the only human being on earth. But let's imagine for a second, just to understand debt payments, a very wealthy person who had a lot of student loan debt. If you have a quarter million dollars in student loan debt, but you make $120,000 a year, you can afford to make your student loan payments. You may, not, you may not pay down the principal much or at all, but over an indefinite period of time, you can continue to pay on that debt without defaulting on it. And that's where we are as a nation. We can afford to service our debt uh but we can't really afford to pay it down. And in fact, <laughs> we keep borrowing. Uh, so some of our lenders are getting nervous. 
uh, China especially. So let's dig into a longer answer because this is important. The first thing I want to note is that almost 30% of the total national debt is held by the United States government itself. So the U.S. government issues treasury bonds and then buys them from itself. Different arms of the government buy treasury bonds. What in the world? How does that make sense? (laughs) Well, that mainly happens in accounts and funds that are associated with retirement. So U.S. bonds are considered a safe investment. So if you're running a trust for you know the the Department of Defense to handle retirement for defense employees US bonds aren't a terrible place to put your money because you won't lose any but then oddly enough the government owes itself money with interest when that happens so 30% of the debt is held that way that's the public debt. Uh, now we have private debt. Well, foreign governments hold a lot of our debt. Um, that's our public debt, um, or excuse me, our private debt. And that uh, they buy to regulate their currency and to finance continued U.S. spending. If you're China, you buy U.S. Treasury bonds so that the United States has a stable economy, a lot of wealth to buy Chinese goods. That's how economies work. Money moves in circles. Um, And then non-government retirement funds own a tremendous amount of the national debt as well. So most of the U.S. debt, in fact, more than half of it, is owed to Americans or the American government. More than half of the total debt. Uh, So you might have heard people in the news saying, oh, there's so much foreign debt, you know, uh, other people own this country. To be accurate, this is very simple math, more than half of the total U.S. debt is owed to the United States government or its citizens. That does not mean we are in the clear in regards to the amount of debt that we carry. We will almost certainly face a severe debt crisis as the baby boomers retire. Right now, the baby boomers, which are a massive American generation, are working and contributing tax revenue, not only to the general fund that operates the U.S. government, but also to the Social Security Fund. Soon, boomers will start retiring. Some already have, but will hit a critical mass when lots of boomers retire. And then all the boomers retire, and they'll start drawing from the Social Security Fund, and they won't be contributing to it or to the general U.S. government fund. And that is a big deal, because $2.8 trillion of the national debt is owed to the Social Security Fund. Now, this might sound political, what I'm about to say, but it is not. This is a very simple reading of the situation. The Social Security program is not an entitlement. It's not an entitlement. Why? Because it's a self-sustaining retirement pool that United States citizens 
pay for via Social Security taxes. You've put in money into a retirement program that's supposed to be invested so it grows so at after a period of time of contribution, you start withdrawing money from the fund. And the way Social Security is structured, it should be permanently self-sustaining with no additional tax revenue. So what's the problem? Well, the U.S. government borrows, in the form of its Congress, from the Social Security Fund to pay for general operations instead of investing the money. So imagine if you were with a bank that said they would manage your retirement and you were paying them every month to put money in a mutual fund and they took that money and used it to run the bank with the assumption that they might be able to pay you back later out of their profits. Well, uh, those bankers would go to jail because that's illegal. But when the United States Congress raids a retirement fund called Social Security, they just call the program an entitlement and then tell you that later they might have to cut benefits. So this is the problem. Um, In principle, I don't actually have problems with deficit spending. Uh, Some economists have plausible Models where, uh, at least in the short term, or especially in the short term, deficit spending stimulates an economy enough to eventually offset the loss through interest. But done at the scale that the U.S. government has done in rating not just the Social Security Fund, but many government retirement programs, over time, while constantly threatening austerity, it destabilizes the economy. And that's why we're in a debt crisis. Um, More than half of the U.S. debt is owed to retirement funds, and a huge swath of Americans are about to retire. And now that we didn't invest the money, we have to figure out how to pay those obligations. Do we raise taxes? Do we fail to meet our obligations? That's the choice that we're facing here. It's a huge huge problem, but it hasn't affected us yet because most baby boomers are working and haven't retired yet. That's why you haven't felt anything day by day. Now, uh, in terms of how the debt has grown, uh, our debt grew a lot in World War II, and then we had a great economy. We paid it down very low, and then for the first time, the debt really skyrocketed under President Reagan. I bet you didn't expect that. (laughs) Uh, Ronald Reagan was the first modern president to really raise the national debt. In fact, more than doubled it. And Reagan and uh, later Bush, uh, H.W. Bush and then Bill Clinton, uh, created a new model where uh, Democrats, who used to be what they called tax and spend Democrats, compared to the fiscal prudence of conservatives or Republicans who had cut taxes and cut spending, both parties now started cutting taxes while increasing spending, which is ridiculous. I have no problem if you want to raise taxes and boost spending. Uh, Lots of countries do that. It, It appears to work very well for their societies as long as sufficient services quality services come out of that. 
uh, there's a logical ele- elegance, at least, to the conservative idea of cutting taxes and cutting spending. Um, but you can't cut taxes and raise spending. <laughs> and that's what we've been doing. Uh, and then that led to a financial crisis. Well, that and, 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 and poor behaviors by lenders and our economy. Lots of financial imprudence in real estate. We all know that well. And so George W. Bush presided over the largest increase in the national debt in American history. And then Obama resided over even more because the crisis continued. Without the stimulus that George W. and Obama pumped into the economy, we probably would have fallen into a depression. We may have defaulted on our debt and uh, Ask Science Mike would probably not exist because, you know, I'd be begging for money on the street along with all of you. Uh, but the fact is, in the short term, it always makes sense to spend more. Uh, and you can make great arguments for cutting taxes in the short term. That makes sense over and over and over until the very moment that it doesn't and your economy shudders like we saw in Greece. Now, don't hear me um, prescribing any particular solution here. Uh, I'm not. I do have my opinions. That wasn't what the question was about, though. The question is, how do we have so much debt and not feel it? Well, it's because we can afford our debt payments. That's why. Uh, If we continue to grow our debt uh, so quickly as we have in the last couple of presidents, if we have a lot of people retire, if we have... uh, economic retraction, we could be in a real debt crisis. And since more than half of the debt is owed to Americans, it will be Americans who are hurt the most. Our last question came in via email, and it reads, Hey Mike, I was curious to know your thoughts on violence in video games. I grew up playing many video games where violence essentially was the plot of the game. For example, Mortal Kombat, Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty, or Halo. At this time, whenever I heard someone say that these games desensitize people to real-world violence or even directly cause it, I outright rejected the claim. However, after completing some psychological schooling, I've come across some data suggesting that such games do, in fact, have a desensitization factor. So far, I haven't stolen any Lamborghinis or went on a citywide crime spree, but my question is, what effect, if any, do these types of games have on our brains? Thanks for all you do. It's a great question. It's one I love because I am a lifelong gamer. Uh, I've always played video games as long as they've been a thing in the world. (laughs) Because I'm old enough, uh, you know, I guess I missed Pong, but uh, the the real golden age, starting with the Atari, of in-home gaming, uh, cleanly, cleanly correlated with my childhood. Um, There is some scattered data that shows links between video gaming and uh, desensitization of violence, but research has not shown any linkage, correlation, causation between playing violent video games, and violent behavior. Uh, Some studies do show a correlation between frequent, high-duration 
violent gaming sessions, and high-risk factor youth, especially males. They show a correlation, but they haven't linked a causal relationship there. So it could be that if you're the kind of high-risk male prone to violence, uh, that drives you to play video games. You see what I mean? So the causality is the other way. Or it could be a simple correlation with no causal relationship or further studies could reveal a causal relationship, but they have not yet. In terms of what gaming does to the brain, well, one, believe it or not, gaming, including violent video games, shows some consistent cognitive benefits about information processing and spatial awareness. So in certain types of uh, cognitive tests, gamers perform very well. So, of course, we should just game all the time, right? No. Uh, lots of gaming has been shown to drive anxiety. People who game very frequently and for long durations of time have higher anxiety levels can, and can even be moved towards generalized anxiety disorders, which are very difficult to deal with in your life. The other thing we know is that too much sedentary activity and Gaming is a sedentary activity unless you're doing something like, you know, VR where you're moving around a lot. Uh, that has an impact on the brain and your health. That is negative. It drives obesity, reduces brain mass, uh, can affect decision making capacity. So the cognitive boosts you get from gaming uh, are not near enough to overcome the losses from too little physical activity. So what does this mean to me? Um, it means. If you're going to be a gamer, you need to be self-aware. You need to be aware if this is desensitizing you. You need to be cognizant. You need to be aware if you feel violent impulses or aggression. And that's not very likely. So more likely, you need to be aware if playing games too much is affecting your physical life or preventing you from socializing with others. And you need to enjoy gaming in moderation. That will let you get a recreational benefit, and a cognitive benefit from gaming without negatively impacting your physical or mental health. It's all about moderation. Um, and, I, and I've got to be honest, I don't play nearly as many violent video games as I used to. I, I'm much more troubled by them than I once was. The same is true for me in violent media. Um, but I think that has been driven by spiritual development. Um, it's, it's just, I just value human life too much to uh, glorify it in our media as a problem solving mechanism or a sign of heroism or a sign of strength. I find it interesting how often as we promote female characters in storytelling now, we do that by making them extremely violent. So our solution to patriarchal media is to make women as violent as men. Um, and that troubles me. And that troubles me in gaming as well. So just enjoy gaming as a part of your overall media diet. And make sure your overall media diet is a small part of your leisure time. Um, a walk outside, uh, a time spent over a table with good friends, these are very beneficial both for your brain and your emotional health. So enjoy gaming, but not too much. 
Well, this has certainly been a really long episode of Ask Science, Mike, uh, but I thought some excellent, challenging questions this week. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can leave a comment for me on AskScienceMike.com on this episode, which is called Chlorophyll Convergence and Crisis with Debt. You can also tweet me at AskScienceMike or visit me at Facebook.com slash Mike.McHark. I'd love to talk to you on social media or on the comments section of the website. Uh, I'd like to thank Andrew Galucky for pre-production on the show. I'd like to thank Greg Nordine for production and sound design. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for keeping me alive and for picking the questions on the show every week. If you'd like to help keep this program going, I could really use your $1 to $5 a month donation. Learn more at AskScienceMike.com. Just look for the Patreon icon. Uh, thanks, Jeb Bodiford, of course, for the Ask Science Mike theme song. And thank you all for listening. I can't wait to talk to you next week. <laughs>